we had that promotional Mew card. Now that you're talking about it, I'm like, uh-huh. wait, it's hold got, on. It's got like the Egyptian yes. type symbols on it. The yes. whole thing is holographic. Yes, yes. yes. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your leaders and fathers, uh, Pete Romberg, and joining me, as always, is my fellow uh, leader. (laughs) I hate you. (laughs) Uh, Martha Sullivan, librarian... Pumpkin beer drinker and not a cult leader. (laughs) You're missing out. Lots of perks. (laughs) Um, As you can imagine, we are talking today about cults. Um, We're going to be looking at a documentary about one of the most famous cults uh, in modern times. And then we're going to be looking at two fictionalized versions of cults going from realistic to very much not realistic. Um, In in terms of sci-fi and stuff pretty realistic in terms of cult dynamics um but before we get into all of that it's only fair to share with you all what is stuck in our heads that's whatever piece of pop culture we want to be talking about uh, before we dive right into cultdom uh so martha what is stuck in your head this week I have decided that for this year in October, I am going to try and watch a horror movie every day from now through the end of the month because I already watch a lot of horror and this gives me a chance to, this gives me a reason to search out and watch the, the ones that have been on my watch list for a long time or, you know, stuff that I have kind of seen but haven't watched yet. Um, And also a chance to revisit some classics, which I've also been doing. But what I want to talk about right now is a movie from 2001 that I have meant to watch for a very long time uh, called Ginger Snaps. That was from 2001? Yes, it is a 2001 movie starring Emily Perkins and Catherine Isabel. And I first heard about this movie when I watched Catherine Isabel in Hannibal where she plays Mason Verger's sister. She is great in that, by the way. But um, Ginger Snaps is a teen horror movie about Ginger and her younger sister, Bridget. Uh, Ginger gets attacked by some kind of monster in their town uh, and then starts turning into a werewolf. And Bridget has to... um, Bridget starts out trying to help Ginger and save ginger and it turns into saving other people from ginger um it is a very good movie about um it is a body horror movie it is a teen girl coming of age movie it is a puberty movie it is a specifically it is everyone is afraid of female puberty kind Mm -hmm. of movie Mm -hmm. um and yeah it's just a really good monster movie there's like knowing your buttons it's a sister movie Yes, it is also a sister movie. <laughs> um, and it's kind of an all boys are dirtbags movie. So mm. really, this one is firing on like all <laughs> cylinders for me. <laughs> the Venn diagram is a circle for you. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's great fun. I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's on Shudder right now. So mm. I recommend it. Um, I forgot to cancel my Shudder, Shudder subscription uh, this month, so which is actually the best month to accidentally have a subscription to Shudder. Uh, so maybe I'll end up using it, uh, sometime this month. 
doesn't Shutter charge you annually? I got something through Apple, which is how I picked up Shutter to watch one of our homeworks a couple episodes ago. Um, Last episode? Yes. Because you were watching yes. Revenge. <laughs> yes. Yes, that is all true. Um, yes. What is time? A flat circle. <laughs> right. Uh, but I got I got something through Apple, so it's a monthly um, fee. Mm. Um, I think it's worth it. I pay 60 bucks a year, and I it is... You also watch horror all the time. Like That is also true. I, I would be watching horror only on my own time, and I just don't watch enough horror. Like, I don't watch enough things on my own to make it worth my while. I mean, it also has Escape from New York. <laughs> I... <laughs> Okay, that's good to know. That movie just left HBO, and I'm trying to convince Martin to watch it. <laughs> you are you eventually are going to have to come to grips with the fact that there are movies that you should watch that Marin doesn't. No, no, no. Want to. no I'm I'm very much aware of it. Uh, the movie podcast that both she and I are devotees of is currently doing John Carpenter. So, uh. Oh, this is like your one chance to get her to watch uh, I like, know. The Thing. Uh, <laughs> I know. Uh, she's technically been in the same room as The Thing was on and just studiously wasn't watching it. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, you should add Halloween to your list of um, classics. I already watched it. Okay, cool. Like, like in the recent past. Sure, sure, sure. Um, right. But I just placed holds on a bunch of the Halloween sequels. Ooh. And I would like to watch the most recent iteration with older Jamie Lee Curtis, mm -hmm. um, whose sequel just came out recently. Yeah, I've not seen either of those. And I, I wanted to back when the, the first version of those came out, like 2016, whatever year it was. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I will hopefully be watching. I can hopefully get my hands on those. Um, I recently rewatched Nightmare Before Christmas, which owns it's like of Before of Christmas original... or on Elm Street. Oh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Cool. Sorry. I mean, they both own. I no, well. <laughs> but in speaking of like that original cla class like your, your, of teen slashers, your holy horror trinity of Michael, Jason, and Freddy. It's the best one. <laughs> um. And I understand that it hits some of my horror buttons a little harder than the other ones, but it is also just the best one. You tweeting about it uh, makes me uh, very excited to watch it. I'm, I'm putting it on my much must-watch list for this October. I even thought the new one that they made with um, the actor from Watchmen was really good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. Yep, never going to get his name off the top of my head. But yeah, it's got Rooney Mara as the main Nancy character. Mm -hmm. um, she is all she is part of what makes the original one great. She it takes Rooney her like Mara? two hours. No, um, the character of Nancy. Right, it takes right. her like two hours to be like, got to figure out how to kill this sucker in my dreams. <laughs> like, yes, get it. Get him. Do it. <laughs> uh, but I digress. What is stuck in your head, Pete? Now, what's stuck in my head is a video game that I uh, started and completed over this weekend, which is like I never... Most games I play are either games without ending, a la Stardew Valley or Animal Crossing, or just much bigger, sprawlier games. So it was so fun to play a game that took me 10 hours to play, or less. Um, it's called The Forgotten City. It is a mystery adventure role-playing game. It got its start as a mod of Skyrim, but like that was way back in you know 2012 or whatever uh, and since then it has mo it has developed into its own fully fledged out game um 
The premise is that you awake by a river, and a mysterious uh, young woman asks you to go investigate some old Roman ruins behind you. You go do that, and you get sucked into a portal back to a uh, a Roman city in, like, 79 CE. However, this city is full of creepy golden statues and about 20 people, uh, all who have various needs, and you go about helping them. But it's also a time loop game, because uh, the, the purpose of this city, or the whole crux of the city, is that everyone must obey the golden rule. All will suffer for the sins of the one. So, whenever anyone breaks a law, all those golden statues come to life and turn everyone into golden statues themselves. Uh, luckily, there's a time portal, so that whenever someone breaks the law, you can run back to the time portal, uh, jump in it, and reset the day, but keeping all the equipment and stuff that you picked up along the way. Um, so, you're trying to figure out how to escape this city, what the heck is going on, what's up with these golden statues, who's going to break the golden rule, um... And it hits all of my buttons, like it's a Skyrim <laughs> mod. Uh, it's deeply invested in in Roman uh, Greek uh, sort of history and lore. They consulted a um uh, like historians to get the architecture right and the the costumes right and all the rest of it. Um, it's a time loop game. We all love time loops. <laughs> uh, and the graphics are gorgeous, except for the face animations, which are <laughs> awful. Truly <laughs> abominable. <laughs> um, and I played it on the Switch. Unfortunately, I don't know if this is true of the other... It's basically available on everything. Uh, but the Switch is a cloud-based version. So if your internet sucks, there are moments where it's really laggy. Um, it mostly didn't impact me. But, I was going to say, don't love that. Yeah, it mostly didn't impact me, but there was a moment like Saturday morning when I was playing it uh, where I'm like, this has become basically unplayable. I'm going to stop uh, and the pick it up thing later. Is, the thing is that I frequently play Switch games when I'm in bed and in my bedroom is where the internet is the worst in my house. Mm -hmm. This is definitely a game that you need audio for. Like, I, I usually play the Switch without the sound on and in... Um, Yes. Mobile correct. mode, whatever, because like, because the TV's on. Uh, this yes. was the first game in a long time that I was like, I'm playing this on the TV because <laughs> uh, I want the sound. I want the the big screen. Um, when you're not looking at people's faces, it's beautiful. So uh, if you were terrified of that Doctor Who episode where the weeping angels come to life, this will get you a little bit of creepy vibes because it's a lot of golden statues and various poses of terror, fright, uh, you know, self-defense, whatever. Um, they don't move until someone breaks the golden rule, but, uh, you know, there's a little creepy, creepy vibe going throughout all of it. Um, at some point I will give you my list of video game recommendations that are 10 hours or less to play because hmm. that is also a space that I, cause I have a handful of games that I'm just like, I'm going to invest 300 hours into this. Right. But then also sometimes it's like, I just want to play this for a weekend. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, I, I think you might like this game. Uh, it it taps a lot of the that like Greek Roman myth slash religion stuff that we both love. I will tell you, I was in until you started talking about the problems with the switch port, because that mm. is really my primary. That is my primary place to play games. Yeah. And there is a free demo. <laughs> um, I found the demo was a little laggier than the f than the actual pay version. But mm -hmm. like that would be a place to check it out. And and first off, who knows? Maybe it was laggier just because at that moment in time, my Wi-Fi was a little sluggish. Sure. Um, 
But, you know, if you wanted to check it out, see if it's for you, see if it's even viable uh, for you. Fair enough. Uh, you know, check the free demo and go from there. All right. Well, uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to be inducted into various cults. Uh, not a fun mystery cult like you might have in, say, ancient Roman times, uh, but instead modern cults. So stick around through those horrible, horrible segues. Uh, and we'll be right back. <laughs> So today we're talking about modern cults and media interpretations of cults. We're going to start off with the real. Uh, first piece of homework was a documentary um, about one of the most famous modern American cults, Jonestown, and famously known as the Jonestown Massacre. Uh, Martha, tell us about this piece of homework. So this was a 2007 documentary filmed and aired on the History Channel uh, that combines some that combines interviews with uh, eyewitness and survivors and historical reenactments. Um, the the kind of crowning achievement of this documentary is that they had a very brief they have a very brief interview with Jim Jones's son Stephen Jones, um, which was impressive mostly because Stephen Jones just in general doesn't like talking about this whole deal, which I think For is very understandable. Reasons. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have seen a couple of Jonestown uh, documentaries in my life. Um, this one is one of the more recent ones that you can find for free on YouTube. I thought it was fine. Um, I, I think that you and I have kind of similar feelings about documentaries that include dramatic reenactments but mostly i wanted to include something on jonestown because i feel like when people talk about cults this is what they're thinking of they're thinking of the charismatic leader who ships his first like builds his following cuts them all off from their uh family and friends and the and then eventually ships them all down to an isolated location where they cut them off from the world uh and then the whole thing ends in a mass suicide. Um, Jonestown is kind of ubiquitous enough in our culture that the suicide part has distressingly become a joke drinking, in a lot of ways, drinking like drinking the Kool-Aid. Kool yeah. Um, and I, I thought it was important for us to at least touch on the fact that the people being the people who get involved in cults are vulnerable populations they are um people who are at drift adrift they are um you know estranged from their families frequently they are people like a lot of the people that died at jonestown were people of color they were poor people they were um you know addicts and people without family um 
and the the sequences in the documentary that show that particular scene, I think I think a lot of us before kind of understanding the truth of what Jonestown was and became have this image of everybody just voluntarily participating in drinking the Kool-Aid. And a mm. lot of those people didn't mm-hmm. like it. A lot of them did, but also there's a lot of coercion and murder that happens particularly with the children of the settlement. Yeah. And then there's like how, what, what does willing participation mean in a situation like this, where there's, there's, as you're saying, coercion sort of up and down the spectrum of what is coercive. Right. Like you have, you have somebody who is, um, what is the word that I'm looking for? Um, narcissistic enough to believe that they have the right to determine the lives of a whole group of people, Mm -hmm. um, like to control those people down. Like it it start, I feel like it starts with what they, what they, where they live, who they talk to, what they eat, what they drink, what they wear. And then eventually it turns into whether or not they get to live or die. Mm -hmm. And Jonestown, I think encapsulates, the it, it's it is the worst of what we see in organizations like this but also is kind of the template for what we see in yeah. organizations like this like yeah. the other thing to remember about Jonestown is that at the end of the day in terms of what cults are and what they do Jonestown was almost pretty typical yeah like the the only the same... atypical thing is that it was out of country yes like they they uprooted and moved down to guyana which is in south america Mm -hmm. um and like it it started as this kind of compound and then like away from the eyes of the american media and the american government um and then when the american government decided to go check on their people jim was like "Ooh, no yeah (laughs) not gonna do that yes Um, but yeah, so I, I, what, regardless of how we feel about the way that this documentary was presented, which I do want to get into, but first I just wanted us to watch something that gave us context for a real incident that happened with real people's lives, um, in, at a time that was really not too far or not too long ago. Yeah, I, like, what I knew about Jonestown was like your basics, you know, charismatic cult leader. Um, I knew he was like a church originally and then, you know, from there, uh, grew up, uh, sent his people down, murder, suicide, massacre, um, drinking the Kool-Aid. Uh, weirdly enough, and this is a very minor tangent, I had always imagined it as like red Kool-Aid. I think that because that's how it's often portrayed in culture. And that Mm -hmm. was the, like, they used red Kool-Aid red drinks in earlier training drills for their revolutionary suicide. But the actual final deadly Kool-Aid was purple, was grape flavored. Um, Yeah. That's just a little total (laughs) piece of nothing. Um, What I didn't realize, and as the Q revolutionary suicide might have tipped you off on, was that it was an explicitly, like, in their view, socialist Marxist organization. It was radically um, integrationist. Uh, The reason why so many African-Americans were involved and died was because Jones was, like, at the cutting edge of 
uh, integrationist movements and, um, you know, radical racial equality, which is great until it becomes this. Uh, and and similarly, like, like radical socialist movement to the point where we're banning, you know, decadent capitalist Western media in in the compound only soviet propaganda is allowed and and some western uh content that is you know critical of the capitalist system anything that anyone watches needs to be watched with cultural interpreters to ensure that they are getting the correct you know uh ideology out of whatever it is that they're watching um which is it's that wonderful combination of of cults do this and totalitarian states do this uh, oh yeah, it is all at the end of the day a way of controlling the way that you think. Mhm. Mhm. And um, cults are almost total cult I mean not almost. Cults are totalitarian governments on a small scale. Like yeah. the people who end up being cult leaders if given the opportunity would have become fascist dictators. Just this is the scale at which they like figured out how to operate. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Um, and and I, actually, I, I, I do think that a lot, like, I think that frequently a lot of, of cult leader tactics might not work on a big scale, thinking later of Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, um, but a lot of them do. Uh, and, and Jonestown apparently was taking a lot of its cues from North Korea. Yeah. Um, um, I and, actually... and on the flip side, and the weird thing is that, like, Jim Jones was a major player in California politics and was very well respected um, before uh, moving down to Guyana and, um, you know, setting up setting up the compound there. Uh, but well, that that's know... also probably a little bit of like throws a lot of money around. So therefore is respected, um, gets gets people elected, but, you know, not on the level. Well, you know who tried to become a major player in the California entertainment scene? Jim Jones? Charles Manson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, hung, <laughs> hung out with um, one of the Wilsons of the Beach Boys. Uh-huh. I actually first, like, learned... I, I first learned in depth about Jim Jones and the People's Temple in an American religion class that I took in college. Ooh, that would have been interesting. Yeah, because he takes a lot of tricks from, like, fundamentalist religious creed and practices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sort of a combination of, like, new wave, mar- or not new wave, but, yeah, new, what the heck am I looking for? Like, spiritual, new wave spiritualism? There we go. And, like, Pentecostal Christian revivalism and a dash of Marxism. And a charismatic leader. Mix it all up. Yes. Uh, Wikipedia defines um, the People's Temple as uh, elements of Christianity with communist and socialist ideology with an emphasis on racial equality. Mm-hmm. Which, like, to me, sounds pretty good. Yes. <laughs> uh, and we should say um, 909 people died in the suicide and murder at Guyana. Mm-hmm. Um, it was incredibly tragic and I, the more that you learn about it, I think, and by you, I mean, I, um, the more tragic, I think it is that it has become this kind of ubiquitous meme almost in our mm. culture. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, 
I try really hard not to engage with that kind of reference anymore just because it it's sad. Like mm-hmm. these people were promised something and it ended their lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is sort of emblematic of cults, even if you are a survivor of them, it ruins your life. Mm-hmm. And and we're going to be exploring that in our next homework assignment. Um, yes. It would be an awesome segue, but I do have one final thing I wanted to mention. Sure. Um, like Jonestown was uh, like that. The events that happened there took place in. Uh, boy, that's actually nowhere on the wiki page for this documentary. Um, there we go, 1978. Uh, so Jonestown, the the events that took place there happened in 1978. So while it is the template for many modern American cults, in terms of sort of means of control and structure, it is not really the template of modern American cults ideologically. Right now the far more common ideology you're going to find is a, a like white nationalist right wing Christian ideology. Like, mm. sorry, keep going. mm -hmm. Um, or a sort of like back to the land communal kind of mindset. Like we'll find in Martha Marcy and, uh, the endless are two, are two homeworks, which are much more sort of a bucolic communal hippie sort of cleanse your body detox type cult. Um, but in terms of, uh, th- things like Waco and Ruby Ridge, uh, are much, are, are more right-wing, white nationalist, uh, Christian identity type movement cults, um, which have proliferated in America since the, the mid-80s. I don't disagree with anything you just said. I also think that it is prudent for us to point out that one of the other most popular cult forms well, two that I want to mention. One of them is LDS. Mm, um, mm-hmm. Church of Latter-day Saints is absolutely a cult. Um, and the other one is multi-level marketing schemes. Yep. Which are frequently patterned very heavily on cult behavior and ideology. Absolutely right. Uh, and Scientology. I just watched the Lula Row documentary. Oh boy. <laughs> Which is both definitely a cult and also um, controlled by the LDS. So there's that. <laughs> Lulu Rowe has LDS connections? The founders huh. are Mormons. Huh. Huh. Um, I know almost nothing about Lulu Rowe other than, you know, popular way for women to get leggings at one point. That I, I assume they have other clothing, oh, too. But legging, leggings was a big uh, a big part of it. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, uh, glad I torpedoed the awesome segue that was going to happen. Uh, that's all right. I forgive you. <laughs> uh, so we're going to jump to our next homework assignment, which is our first fictional piece. Um, I assigned the 2001 dramatic thriller, Martha Marcy May Marlene, um, directed by Sean Durkin and starring Elizabeth Olsen in sort of her breakout role, uh, and John Hawks, uh, as well as Sarah Paulson and Hugh Dancy. Um, this is about, uh, Martha a.k.a. Marcy, or, sorry. This is about Martha, a.k.a. Marcy May, a.k.a. Marlene, uh, who is escaping from a cult uh, that she has been involved in for the last couple years and uh, runs off to her sister, whom she has been estranged from, um, in in the Catskills, uh, 
uh, and um, I guess the sisters in Connecticut, the cult was in the Catskills, so we're talking about upstate New York area, uh, the the Northeast, um, and how Martha is trying to sort of re-enter society and the struggles that she has doing that, the struggle that that, that imposes on um, her sister and her sister's husband, uh, played by Hugh Dancy. Um, and this is all intercut with flashbacks to her life in the cult. Um, the cult was pretty bad. Uh, it was run by uh, by John Hawks uh, as Patrick. Um, your classic bucolic communal back to the land, let's purge the toxins from our body. Uh, you are a teacher and a leader kind of cult um, that also has uh, codified sexual assault and uh, breaking and entering and murdering and, and robbery, uh, and a one-off line about how um, the cult leader only has boy children. Uh, and that's never explored, but kind of gives you the vibe of like, huh, what what's happening there? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's your definite, like, you enter the, you slowly enter the commune, become part of the community, and then your desire to come into contact with your, with your family is, is chipped away and destroyed. Uh, and also there's a building, um, complicity built in, uh, through Martha's time there she gets renamed as marcy may uh stripping away her old identity building a new identity um and slowly is um peer pressurely forced into uh doing things that make her more and more complicit in the ways of the cult building her um again making it harder and harder to leave because she is involved in it in a more uh, in more and more extreme ways um I had seen this back in high school. Uh, Martha, this is your first time watching it. It is a movie starring a person with your own name. Uh, True. Yeah. What'd you think? Um, I thought it was really, really compelling. Uh, this is definitely a Manson girl um, yeah. influenced movie rather than a Jonestown. I feel like when we get, when we get cult fiction, it is, it tends to either be based on Jonestown or the Manson family. And this one is definitely Manson family. The um the the, um, the uh, director who is also the writer said that he um, read and was influenced by quote the big ones of cults Jonestown the Manson family, um, the United Church of the United States a movement I've never heard of, uh, and David Koresh and the um, Branch Davidians, uh, which is Waco. Well, and also I would like to read a quote from Sean Durkin the director because it was also influenced by a friend of his, mm-hmm. and. So the the interview is on Yahoo.com Entertainment. Um, it's an interview that came out right around the movie being released. The question is, did you base this on any of the Charles Manson survivors? And the response is, no, not quite. I did a lot of reading about cults. You start with the big groups like the Mansons and Jim Jones, but a lot of it came from a person that I know who went through it. How did you develop the flashback, flash-forward structure in the script? That came very early on, actually, in the script. I started to talk to the person who sort of became my main source on cults. She described the first few weeks of out of the cult as being really confusing. Mm. She didn't really remember what happened to her during that time, and she just remembered that she lied to everyone about where she had been, and she Mm -hmm. was paranoid that she was being followed. 
That story gave me the idea. Martha was trying to make sense of what happened to her. So although they are flashbacks, I thought that was just her going back and experiencing what had happened. Going back and forth in that way and getting lost in the space and time would be representative of the emotion that somebody goes through when they come out of something like this. Um, and I think that he captures that really effectively. Like there's a lot of, there are not a lot of, um, obvious transitions that happen between the flashbacks. Like Martha's experience just kind of moves fluidly back and forth between what she's experiencing now and her memories of, um, her time in the cult. And yeah, I thought, we're not doing any like thought, orange tint for past blue tint for present or anything. Right. It just kind of it it moves very seamlessly back and forth, mm -hmm. um, which also makes it very confusing as a viewer to be watching it because you always go through a quick moment of orienting yourself, mm -hmm. um, which I imagine was by design. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's also, I, I think, intentionally very frustrating because Martha is absolutely like is lying to her sister about where she's been and, and what's going on with herself. She is not opening up in any meaningful way which makes you the viewer like you're so sympathetic to her because of like what she's going through but also in a way i i felt very sympathetic to her sister who is like trying a lot to help her but also like isn't giving her the help she needs because she doesn't know what kind of help she needs or what she's gone through so like she's also like she's getting frustrated she's getting short because she thinks she's just leaving a bad relationship um i i don't think that's correct I think she understands what she's leaving. I, I think don't know if she does. I well, cuz at no point does Martha Martha tells her that she's leaving a Oh, her sister thinks she's leaving sister, a bad yes, relationship. Okay, yes. Yes. yes, yes. Um, sorry. <laughs> right. No, yeah, Martha I was I like Marcy does not. <laughs> yeah, no. Marcy understands. Right. No, but, but for her, sure. Like, like her sister doesn't know what she's leaving, doesn't know what help she needs. Um is is like confused by her weird and like on like not antisocial not unsocial but like desocialized reactions to a lot of things uh, to, to Martha's like wrong socialization um and and like and she's frustrated and upset with her and that makes total sense because she doesn't know what she's going through so like in one way like I was frustrated with Martha for not, like, just being like, just tell your sister, come on. But it makes sense that she wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, and you also get the feeling that at the, like, right now, she doesn't know how to talk about it. Mm-hmm, yeah. Like, we, we as the audience get to see her kind of start to process everything, but, like, it's awful, and if you also imagine... I mean, part, so she undergoes while she is at the, while she is in the cult, she is raped, she is emotionally abused, she's emotionally isolated, and eventually ultimately witnesses Patrick kill someone mm -hmm. uh, in, I think, probably my least favorite part of the movie. Um, uh, Patrick didn't kill someone. It was a different cult member who killed someone, right? Mm -mm. It's Patrick who, I thought he sneaks up behind the guy. Oh, I thought that was a different cult member who did it, but regardless. <laughs> Watches, watches a murder yeah so she sees they are breaking into a house to rob them for money and she one of the cult members or maybe patrick stabs the owner of the house and they die 
And mm-hmm. then she's... she and Patrick have a conversation later where Patrick is just like, fear is the most beautiful emotion. And I'm like, ooh, girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, she, she's also she's also made complicit in the rape of another woman. Yes. So there is a lot of there's a lot of things that happen that us as outside viewers go, oh, honey, you are not in control of what you are doing. But you can imagine she probably feels a great deal of shame about like Mm -hmm. she doesn't know how to talk to them, talk about what she went through um, and is probably also very embarrassed. And I'm also getting this from the the interview with Sean. Like she is it is still too much for her to talk about. Mm -hmm. So her sister is rightfully frustrated because she doesn't know what happened. She's making assumptions based on like the information that she has. And all of that kind of adds up to my sister is being a psychotic weirdo and I'm not equipped to help her. Yeah. So the, the movie ends with them taking Martha to get professional help and also maybe being followed by a cult member. That part is sort of intentionally intentionally ambiguous. Um, a great but, little graduate ending of just Martha's face in the backseat as as things sort of crash yeah, down truly, on her. Yeah, truly, we do not know if she is being too, if she is being completely paranoid or if they are, if she is actually being followed and hunted by this cult. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I I felt. I mean, I think the the tension of the movie is that you both feel incredible sorrow and empathy for Martha, and also for Lucy, who is in a situation that she doesn't understand and is not equipped to handle. Yeah. Um. So the reason that I did not, the reason that the murder was my least favorite part is that all the movie all exists in this very kind of dreamlike state. Like even the even the parts that are current have this sort of dreamlike quality Mm. and the stabbing is so abrupt and violent and that's probably the point Mm -hmm. but i i i don't know that the bedrock was laid for me to feel that that was a thing that this cult had like i yeah i i don't know i i I don't (laughs) i i don't disagree it's the most um and and we might be talking about this later. It's sort of like the most salacious moment yes. that uh, of the cult, and it, it felt very Mansony. Um, and I didn't need it. Yeah, I think like yeah. the the cult was awful enough that I did not really need to also add a murder. Like it, I felt like without the murder, everything that happened would still have been just as effective. I, I think you need the murder from a story beat because that is the dramatic moment that like causes Martha to have or causes Martha Marcy May to have the break and like realize she needs to leave and return to being Martha. Um, but because I think that by that point she's so deep in, only something as traumatic as that would cause that kind of break. But it. But see. But like, but, but, of... but then it's a it's motivated by story needs, not by like internal logic needs. You know, yeah, I think I still think that we get a lot of that just through the escalating actions that we see around her, like her assisting with the other girl's initiation and her like learning how to shoot the gun and the other woman killing the cat. Like, I I feel like there is enough there to kind of suggest that what they're getting to is murder and then the murder happens and it like almost took me out of Hmm. the movie. It was so like, 
Ugh. But again, I've never been in a cult. Maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's the idea. Like you go along with it until you can't. Right, right. Um, but based like thinking about this in the context of the survivor interviews from the Jonestown documentary, the things that I thought that Martha Marcy May Marlene got really correct were the way that Patrick fosters this sense of um dependency Mm -hmm. with the girls like the way that he develops their quote-unquote society to like orbit around him and it's 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 around him and it's also deeply patriarchal like the men eat first um and then the women eat uh Mm -hmm. and it like it's for being like a a very hippie flavored commune in the catskills where you'd expect it to be more like you know Oh, we're all and, and they espouse ideas of like, oh, we're all equal here. We all work and help out and all the rest of it. Like there is still this this ingrained patriarchy like rooted in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, there's crazy. Oh, uh, the energy is, is um, fascinating to watch uh, crazy dynamics on screen whenever it's Patrick and any of the other randomly, um, uh, you know, random dudes in the cult on screen where it's just like serious, like like alpha dog energy and uh, like, like just like, like dog energy going on, you know, where it's like hierarchy, like there is subtle hierarchying happening where Patrick is always putting the dudes around him in place in Mm -hmm. a way that is never violent, physically violent, but is just clearly like psychologically and emotionally uh, overwhelming. Except for the part where he he tells Martha to shoot that guy <laughs> during gun practice when she won't yeah. when she won't shoot the cat he's like fine then shoot what Watt or whatever well, yeah whatever his name shoot is. shoot Wyatt yeah uh, I, I even that because because he's like haha you're just joking right and Patrick's like no you're kind of no. useless <laughs> yeah uh, you're and just that, here to get girls yeah and that was kind of like you know and, th- and then Wyatt or whatever his name is shoots the other cat and he's like why'd you do that that wasn't sick the the yeah, other girl the other the girl knew yeah zoe knew the difference it's just constant psychological like trauma inflicted on everyone yes and the making sure that they are separated from everyone else they knew like mm-hmm. martha hasn't spoken to lucy in two years yeah um she's so isolated she doesn't even know where she is yeah in new york she calls lucy and lucy's like where are you and she's like i mm, i don't know yeah um, so yeah, those, those parts I thought felt very, felt true to the like nonfiction stuff that I have read about cults and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and this... then that, that sort of creeping paranoia dread is also probably true to life, but also very cinematic. Like it is a psychological thriller at the end of the day. Right. Um, I, I, I picked this when we decided to do cult specifically because it is, in my mind, the most sort of like, quote unquote, accurate at sort of getting into like the psychological feeling of both being in a cult and more importantly of like of trying to come out uh, mm-hmm. of a cult. Um, and and obviously she is nowhere near being deprogrammed. She is like simply grappling with what she went through. Um, but then from there, the next stages become sort of like 
deprogramming and learning to live outside, like learning how to rebuild and reforge your life and connections. Speaking of deprogramming. Cool. I was wondering if like you would take that segue. To move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so our last piece of homework is a 2017 science fiction film. Do, do, do. Written, directed, and starring uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, uh, who play the brothers Aaron and Justin. Oh, the movie's called The Endless. Sorry, I don't think I actually <laughs> said that. So Justin and Aaron are two brothers that 10 years ago escaped from what they believe to be a UFO death cult. Um, and now 10 years later, they receive a videotape in the mail, uh, which is essentially a message from one of the women that was on their, uh, in their encampment. Um, and the two brothers have been kind, they have been struggling in real life. They have, um, you know, been working, they work as cleaners, they're making minimum wage, they live together, they're kind of scraping by. And Justin, the younger brother, is very interested in getting back to the cult just to say hi, just to see how everyone's doing. But he clearly misses the stability of the life that they had there. And Aaron is... Am I mixing up? No, I'm not. Just, no, um, uh, Aaron wants to go back. Justin does not. Okay, Aaron, Aaron is the younger brother. Justin is the older brother. Justin does not want to go back. And part of that that we learn is because... In order to get his brother out of that cult, he lied about what was happening in the cult. He lied about all of these like damaging practices that he said that um, he saw happen. Um, and, you know, the, the cold reality of it is that he told his brother that they were getting out right before the rest of the cult committed suicide. And the cult is still there uh, 10 years later. So the two of them go back for what is supposed to just be a day trip. Um, and as they kind of reconnect with the people at the compound, uh, weird stuff starts happening. Um, things get weirder and weirder until uh, they try to leave. Their car breaks down. Um, Aaron goes to figure out how they can restart the car. And he starts meeting people that it turns out are trapped in time loops that are... Everything is time loops in the year 2021. <laughs> yes. So they are all time loops. They are varying lengths of time. Um, but the point is that the thing that is trapped, there is a thing, a consciousness, a being that is trapping people in time loops that end with their deaths. And the people who are trapped in them are aware that they're trapped in them. So Aaron meets a variety of people who are on different time length loops. Like one, two, two men he meets are trapped in a loop of about a week. He meets one guy who's trapped in a loop of about 12 hours. He meets one guy that's trapped in a loop of about 3.2 seconds, which was very brutal to watch. Um, but they find out that they have Intel the moons come up. <laughs> the three moons, moons three moons. Three moons come up that night before the cult gets destroyed and the two of them are trapped. The two of them become trapped in that loop. Um, the struggle that Justin then has is that Aaron doesn't think that sounds so bad. 
Um, I picked this one because I wanted us to also, in addition to watching a sort of realism-based cult movie, I wanted to watch a very, very fictional one because I feel like the structure of cults, we, we as a culture, I think, are fascinated by them. And I wanted to see something that was purely fictional uh, so that we could talk about, like, what are the what are the sort of take taken from reality tropes and I and not tropes taken from reality characteristics of cults that make it into this very, very sci fi fictional um, story Mm -hmm. um, that kind of end up making it feel (laughs) pretty true. I mean, like the movie is what uh we're gonna call it 111 minutes so um you know call it an hour 40 or whatever um i can do basic math that's an hour 50 uh it's not until like an hour 10 that the sci-fi elements start kicking in Uh, up until then it's a very cut and dried like cult situation and it feels very true you know uh uh emotionally psychologically um i get why like the the cult feels a little too good to be true but beyond that like um justin is able to get his brother out by playing into by 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 spreading lies about the cult playing into beliefs that like average americans would totally believe about a weird ufo death cult like he says that they've cat all the men have castrated themselves and like it's a suicide cult and all the rest of it and it's like yeah all right that checks out that's that's a weird thing that a cult would do um and then like the cult itself is like oh we're just a back the land commune we drink beer and we're sort of a you know improve yourself kind of society there's a, a whole rope pulling thing at night where it's like ah you're confronting your own inner demons um and it feels very also, very new age and spiritually right yeah and also <laughs> who's holding the other end of that rope pete <laughs> you're confronting your inner demons and also the outer great ravenous darkness all right yes <laughs> um yeah, I, I i gotta oh, say this movie was way better than it had any right to be uh i don't know the filmmakers apparently they are uh, pretty famous in horror circles for for having a couple well-reviewed films but um i came into this with very low expectations and was thoroughly entertained and pretty impressed with it it does look like they made it for about 12 dollars, which yeah. is fine totally like, fine I mean, it looks like they made it for 12 dollars, but nowadays 12 dollars buys you a drone and you can get marvelous overhead shots so also true you know like also true uh matt, matt solar sites uh described it as if you have a good idea a strong cast a smart script and directorial chops you don't need a lot of money to make a compelling movie um and yeah that's i i co-signed that that three and a half star review mm-hmm. um i want to talk about the cult for a second because mm-hmm. One of the things that I thought was very interesting about this is that we learned that Justin lied about a lot of the features of the cult. Um, But at the end of the movie, we still see them arranged in a ritual circle. Like, I, I think he was also right. I think he was also right, too. And also, I couldn't quite... So you said that people trapped in the time loop know that they're trapped in the time loop. And that's Correct. definitely true. But also, 
at some point it feels like either it's when the time loop restarts i don't know if they know or if they are just forced to play some roles um deep in the movie we we meet a quote tweaker gun nut and his buddy who is trying to get him clean um who are trapped in their own loops and they say like i'm so sick of you of hearing you say like hey how's it going man when i first show up um and then their loop resets we see their loop reset and it's like hey how's it going man um and so i don't know if it's the kind of thing where as soon as the loop resets they know that they're back at the beginning and they're just pl- and they have to play their role until a certain point or if it's a case where they would slowly learn over time that their loop has that they're trapped in this loop whatever um and i bring so this the... sorry i i bring this up only because i don't know if the the main cult compound there's lots of different time loop bubbles um so we we run into different people it's stuck in different loops Uh, but the main cult loop everyone sort of has a thing right there's there's the the person who paints there's the guy who brews beer there's the dude who's doing magic tricks and they talk about how it's like a million hours until you're like actually an expert at a thing and I wasn't sure if I was supposed to take away the idea that they're also all trapped in a loop um, and that they've had time to sort of like perfect these skills over, you know, 60 years of time loopy without ever aging or um, or if this destruction, this this three moon rising destruction was sort of a final destruction uh, or whether that was simply a restarting the loop destruction. You know what I mean? It's. It's a restarting the loop destruction, and I know that because we get that final scene after the cult compound is destroyed. Where they're all standing. When, where they're all standing watching the two brothers. I think they knew they know what's happening, and I think at the end they are happy that the brothers are leaving. Mm-hmm. Because they, they stand there and they watch them leave, and then they all turn back around and go back to the camp. Well, I, I guess it's the idea of if the brothers don't get out by the third moon they are trapped in that loop then forever but if they do yeah, get I out then if, they break through the loop and yeah i think if if they are there when the camp is destroyed like mm-hmm. if they if they die if you die in canada you die in real life <laughs> um so if they are there long enough to be part of the destruction of the camp then they become part of the loop as a whole but i i think it's more generic where if you're in the loop when it resets regardless of what that reset looks like then you're caught in the loop uh, because the with the, with the tweaker gun nut and his buddy trying to get him clean. Um, our older brother, uh, Justin, was just barely out. Like he saw that loop reset, but there was a, a shot of him being just barely outside the um, the magic sticks that mark the boundary of these time loops. Um, and if he had been like one step closer, he would have been caught in that loop. Is, so- I, is I think the rules of this movie. I, I yeah I think what we're saying is the same thing like I yeah. think I don't those guys are intentionally resetting their loop like their their loop doesn't if they if they both die mm, like their if, loop has if all to the, reset yes yeah um that's one of the things that we learn from the guy who hangs himself mm-hmm. is that either your loop resets when you die or if you don't die the presence just kills you anyway yeah um, so I think that a lot of the loops are marked by death and that whenever the participants in them, like the, if the two, if the two friends, um, die before the week is up, 
the rest of the time is not going to play out without them. It's just going to start over. Because it seems like the presence is literally just like watching humans do stuff. And so if mm-hmm. there are no humans to watch, well, that's boring. So, you know, rewind. Oh, yeah. One of the things that I think is cool is that the movie is wholly uninterested in explaining to you what the entity is, what it wants, why it why it is doing anything that it's doing. It's like, nope, it is just malicious. This just sucks. Yeah, there's it's it's either a title card at the beginning or someone quotes Lovecraft early on and it's like, oh, this is the like it's just some unknown entity from beyond, you know, beyond space, beyond human comprehension messing with humans. Cool. Mhm. Um but Oh, what was I saying? I I thought that it was interesting the way that the cult like we don't really know how everyone ended up at the camp in the first place. Like I think we kind of assume that it's a a cult situation, like that how the the guy who's sort of nominally in charge like collected all these people in the woods. Um but also I kind of feel like there is a scenario in which they were all just in the woods at the time of the destruction the first time. And mm. it's like, well, <laughs> now this is this is our life now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because cool. or- like the brothers sort of entered in. There was a, a one off line of like there was a car crash. Their mother died. He sort of took them in as children. Um, mm-hmm. And. Uh, so yeah, I, I wonder if other people are in that same situation. Uh, there's the woman who's looking for her missing husband, who turns out to be the guy trying to detox the his, his buddy. Yeah. Um, who that was so sad. So sad. Um. Uh, and and she kind of just stumbled across it, you know, like she's she's in the the compounds loop, but she's not really part of the compound. No, and that like I I also wondered like how long has the compound loop been going like the compound loop is 10 years long is this only the second cycle well there were or has it the, the, there's the 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 hut uh, of the brewer with like tapes dating back to the 40s yeah and, okay and and my my vibe was that like that the compound loop dated back at least that far and so then like do they just collect new people <laughs> Mm, periodically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but yeah i i liked that this movie kind of let the structure of a cult do it was it was kind it was it let it left a lot of it to inference or inference yeah yeah <laughs> um and again it is it is trading very heavily on the language of what we understand about cults without actually like explicitly telling you how this whole organization works explicitly yeah we're we're definitely reading like it uses shorthand a lot and it also uses shorthand to at the beginning um sort of throw you off the scent of aliens right like it's Mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of like no, it's a cult. They're going to be weird. Weird things are going to happen, whatever. Um, and it's only when actual weird stuff starts happening that's like, oh, maybe there's something more to this. But I also don't think that there's any doubt that, you know, whatever their practices were, this definitely started life out as like a legit 
the cold. UFOs are coming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of deal. Yeah, 100%. Like, Justin is totally correct in getting his brother out of there. I found their escape scene to be very touching when they are trying to push the car together that won't start because Aaron <laughs> forgot to get a new battery. Um, and- I, I got to say, up until they escaped... I wasn't entirely sure if they weren't themselves stuck in a loop that just happened to, like, be a bubble around them. Um, And and then, obviously, they weren't, but, uh, yeah. um, So, a zillion years ago, in, like, eighth, in, like, sixth or eighth grade English, um, we had a textbook. It was one of those textbooks that had, like, short stories as illustrations for different... um, Sure like writing rules. Yeah. And there was a short story in my textbook that was like a couple paragraphs long. And it is about two boys who bike out to this like neighborhood on the very outskirts of where they live. And they get there and the townspeople are like, you have to leave. If you're still here when the sun sets, you're stuck forever. Mm -hmm. And the last couple sentences of the story are them being like, all right, we got to go. We got to go. And the woman watching them going, oh, those poor boys don't know that they've been doing this for like 20 years. <laughs> That's that good. is what I was that That's is what good. I was thinking of <laughs> when I watched the end of this movie. Yeah, I, I had the same thought. Like, I, I thought they were going to hit the wall and then like wake up in their apartment being like, you got to fix the battery in the car. Oh, that would have been horrible. <laughs> Because the whole point of the end is that Justin learns to let Aaron have his agency and Aaron learns that, you know, Justin is that uh, does what he does out of love. UFO murder cults are bad to join. (laughs) Yes. Um, Which does remind me before we were recording, you had some pretty weighty things to say about Justin and Aaron's relationship. And I would like to litigate those on air if you if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I, I thought that there were various moments in this where I was getting real vibes of like, so Justin and Aaron's life outside the cult is bad. Um, Justin is, is the older brother and has stronger memories of life in the cult. And so has a higher desire to stay, a, to, to have gotten out. He was the instigating agent for getting out, um, wants to stay away, wants to try to make it work on the outside. Aaron was younger, had mostly pleasant memories of living a bucolic life out in the countryside and, you know, doing whatever. Um, so when he finds out that the cult is uh, hasn't all killed themselves, uh, really does want to go back. There's a vibe throughout that, like, Justin is, 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 like, the leader of the two brothers. Like, he's the one who is, who is, like, making decisions and trying to, to get them to to scrape by and all the rest of it and Aaron at one point is like you're bad like during their heart to heart he's like you're bad at this you make bad decisions you're not good at at what you want to be doing um but also one of the cult members uh sort of calls out Justin is saying your problem is you want to be a leader and at roughly the halfway point in this I was getting feelings of like Justin's relationship with Aaron abusive is too strong a word but like he is psychologically dominating his brother or like acting towards his brother entirely out of love but using techniques that 
would not be dissimilar to those that might be used in a cult. Um, he's and and that is a strong statement that I would like dial down. Those are the words I'm picking, but like dial that all down to like a three instead of a nine. You know, um, he's he's lying to his brother about what the cult was about. He's lying to his brother about sort of what their life was like there before they got out. Um, lying to his brother about the fact that like all the dudes are castrated. Uh, and when that comes out as being not true, his brother's like, you told me that that's what happened. And he's like, I never said that. And like 20 minutes ago, we heard him saying that. So there's a lot of like dissimulation and and just power moves of like Justin trying to control Aaron's life. Um, and we get why, like it's all out of love, but also it is, uh, you know, it, it is controlling and domineering in the way that a cult leader might be controlling and domineering of, of their, uh, their adherence. Um, so I actually think that this is a really clever thing that the movie is doing. Mm -hmm. Um, and reminds me very much of what we see in Martha, Marcy, May Marlene. I think that just, I think that what we are seeing as viewers is Justin expressing the love for his brother in the only language that he has. Hmm. Because they grew up in this cult. Like they were um, adopted as children. Yeah. And lived there through very, like their formative years. And I think that Justin is doing the best for Aaron in the only way that he knows how. Like he is just as emotionally stunted as Aaron is. It's just expressing in a very different way. Right. So he, he does not see it as... Aaron traded one kind of control for another. He sees it as I am protecting my younger brother. And this is the language that I know how to do it in. Right. Cosign all of that. Yeah. So at the end, what we get is both of them, like both of them have an emotional arc. And the end of it is Aaron recognizing that, what Justin was doing was out of love and also that what the cult was doing was not necessarily <laughs> like, <laughs> like, and that having, having freedom and agency is worth not having that security. And Justin gets to learn that Aaron is a whole person who doesn't need him to be making his life decisions for him. Like those right. are the two, those are the two emotional arcs that we get. But the, I the, the big cathartic moment is Justin allowing Aaron to drive the car. Yes. And I, I do believe that the control that Justin exerts over Aaron is due to the fact that what cults do is they they reprogram you. And that is the programming language that he understands. I, I, I don't disagree with that writ large. This particular cult, and, and we only have, you know, the, the cult members say on this, it seems like a an anarcho-syndicalist commune that takes it in turns, you know, being a sort of executive or uh, uh, executive leader for the week, uh, to quote Monty Python. Um, uh, Hal, the quote-unquote leader of the group, I think his name is Hal, um, is very emphatic that he's not the leader and that there is no leader or leadership. So unlike other cults that we've seen, like he, he's the most outgoing, he's the most, you know, leadership type, but this cult doesn't have a charismatic leader in the way that Martha Marcy May Marlene and like real life cults do. Well, except that we never 
I mean, we don't really say see Patrick say, I am in charge of you. Like, I, I wonder if you asked Patrick, Everyone... like, are you the leader of this group? He would say, nah, man. They're all free. Like, they're free agents. Like, I, he doesn't mean it. Everyone defers <laughs> to Patrick in a way that not everyone defers to Hal. And, and maybe uh, that's just because scenes of deference are just not what we're seeing in this. Because um, it's, it's much more kumbaya around a campfire. Well, I also think that for the audience experience, like, we have to have enough doubt. Right. We, have, we have to have a sense of doubt over what is happening. Otherwise, we don't. Like, we, we, we kind of need to be with Aaron when he starts to doubt Justin. Right, right. Which is why I, I am caging all this in, like, according to the cult members, they don't <laughs> have any leaders. And, like, dot, dot, dot. Um, but, like, especially with the time loops, like, if we if we posit that they have been doing this since the 40s, or at least some of them have, it looks like others have been picked up later. Um, but if we posit that some of them have been doing it by the 40s, you probably don't need a leader by your fifth time through. Um, and Hal is pretty clearly, I think, operating as some kind of, like, shepherd character. Yeah, yeah. But, <clears throat> but like, not, not the... From what we see of him and from what he says of himself, he is not the... The Patrick type, he is not the the Jonestown type, if only because he, you know, possibly through the artifice of the time loop, he allows a lot more autonomy. Like, anyone can do whatever they want, you know? Because it's not <laughs> like you can leave. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I, don't, I don't care what you wear. I don't care what you watch or listen to. This is all on you. I also think it's important to clock how many unreliable narrators we have in this movie. Mm -hmm. Like... I also just, because of the way the movie is told, would not necessarily trust everything that Hal says. Yeah, uh, that uh, Aaron is kind of the only one I trust, and that's only because he's like the naive one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I did think it was interesting in marked contrast to Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, where uh, they it seems like a pretty dry commune. Um, most people talk about how they used to drink, but don't now because, uh, you know, toxins or whatever. Uh, this one, they brew beer and they drink they beer all the beer. time. Uh, I would join this commune. Are you kidding me? No, you wouldn't. <laughs> no, you're right. I wouldn't. Uh, I'd think about it and then I wouldn't. Peter. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd have a fun night there hanging out with these these fun folks, singing some campfire songs, drinking some beer. And hopefully it would be not the night of the third moon. <laughs> not the night of the third moon. Yes. All right. Well, anything else you want to talk about vis-a-vis -vis cults or any of our any of our homeworks? I think that's all I have to say. Cool. I think that's it for me too. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. This was a fun conversation and some pretty fun homeworks. Um, I'm gonna delay what our next uh, assignment is until the very end uh, as I get through the outro because we have a really special and exciting announcement for what our next episode is. But before that. Uh, you can find us on any of your favorite podcatchers. Uh, please rate and review us there. That's how the algorithm gremlins can bump us higher up on the rankings and how we know that people might like the show. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram when it's not down uh, at, at DYDYHpodcast. And you can find us on Facebook when it's not down, if you're still on that bad site, uh, by uh. searching for Did You Do Your Homework? You can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. 
Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000, that's P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. Uh, Martha, how about you? Uh, you can follow me at all the places at Magical Martha. Uh, and I'm going to real quick plug my tiny letter, which I haven't updated since April, but I was taking a look back through um, one of the pandemic projects I did at the start of everything. Well, almost a year ago. So last Halloween hmm. was uh, the hundred scariest movie moments from 2010 until now. Yeah. So I was revisiting that. Um, it's incomplete. I think I only got to like 94. Um, only 94. But- <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but also when I wrote it, 2020 hadn't finished. So I had not seen the whole of what 2020 had to offer. But anyway, if you're looking for scary movies to watch, go check out that list. Cool. Um, what else are you plugging? Any other podcasts you might be a part of? Uh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I do another show that updates alternating uh, on alternate Wednesdays as this one uh, with Pete's wife, Marin called Love Ya, where we alternate reviewing a rom-com or a piece of teen cinema. Uh, Last week, we talked about the Netflix Balinese rom-com, A Perfect Fit. And uh, next time we are watching some teen thing on Netflix. I don't remember the title. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, give us a listen. Cool. Uh, Speaking of other podcasts, uh, next episode is going to be really exciting. Uh, Martha, I'm going to let you introduce it. Uh, So next week we are doing another crossover episode with our friends over at Catching Up David. Uh, Viewers may remember our last episode when we talked about trilogy enders. uh, And David got to watch Return of the King and... uh, Return of the Jedi. Return right? of the Jedi. Yeah, it was it, it was our return <laughs> I, double feature. <laughs> I was going to say, I almost said that and I was like, that sounds wrong uh, for the first time. But we are going to be talking about 90s video game movie adaptations. And we uh, will be Buckle watching... up. We got just some real heavy hitters on this one. Truly. We are watching the original Street Fighter. We are watching... Uh, the, is it the Mario Brothers? It is Super Mario Brothers. Super Mario Brothers. And Pokemon. The movie... Mewtwo Strikes Back. Pokemon, the first movie, colon, Mewtwo Strikes Back. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Uh, So please do join us for that. It's going to be exciting. Yeah. Really, really looking forward to this. Not necessarily looking forward to watching some of these, although low-key, I kind of am. Oh, Um, no. I'm not even low-key. I'm hyped. It's going to be... I'm super hyped to rewatch Street Fighter. Uh, I'm fascinated to rewatch Super Mario Brothers. (laughs) uh but yeah yeah it'll be a great conversation uh that's gonna be with yeah as, as martha said with with our friends over at catching up david uh and that's gonna drop in two weeks so until then make sure you do those very exciting weird homeworks <laughs> <laughs> uh and until then class dismissed cool yeah have fun editing that sucker yeah no that'll be this will be fine uh this this is a whole hour shorter than our our uh, previous episodes so <laughs>